Welcome to CCAP Across the Maps podcast, What the Health, where we cover a variety of health topics in the form of personal stories and educational episodes. I'm Jillian Lever, and I'll be one of your hosts. I'm Hunter Ackerley, and I'll be your other host. For season one, episode six, we have decided to interview Dr. Gail peterson Hawk, a cervical cancer survivor, an advocate with more than three decades of experience. Dr. Gail peterson Hawk is a board-certified public and community health clinical nurse specialist and advanced practice public health nurse. Education-wise, she holds a Bachelor of Science in Nursing and a Master of Science in Nursing from Arizona State University. Gail further studied epidemiology and public health ethics at the Harvard School of Public Health, completed the Applied Health Informatics program at Johns Hopkins University, and earned a doctorate in nursing practice at Brandman in the Chapman University system. Her practice has spanned hospital and school nursing, family planning, and a decade as nursing faculty. She recently retired from her role as Associate Dean and Director of the BSN programs at Brandman University. Gail's clinical practice largely focuses on raising immunization awareness and rates in collaboration with the Arizona Partnership for Immunization, the Arizona Cancer Coalition, and the National Cervical Cancer Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us, Gail. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Jill just gave you my professional background, which <laughs> my academic background, but I'm also here as a grandmother, a mom, and a practicing public health nurse. Currently, I focus on raising HPV immunization awareness and rates in Arizona. Unfortunately, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 1982. For me, I was lucky. I was one of the fortunate ones. I had an early diagnosis. I had a physician that I trusted. I had already had my children in 1982, and I, was, I had medical insurance, so I was able to do my follow-up. Uh, well through my 40s. I was 27 when I was diagnosed and I had active surveillance through my 40s and have been fine ever since. Um, A little bit of a treatment with a product called TCA for some abnormal cell cellular changes that came up as I uh, got older, but I've been, I've had no problems since my 40s at all. So I'm one of the lucky ones. Wow. That's an incredible story. You just mentioned that you were diagnosed with cervical cancer back in 1982. Is that what originally inspired you to get involved in the field of cervical cancer prevention? You know, um, my involvement came in 2000, and I'm trying to think when. So my family planning experience, I directed a Title X, that's federal funding, uh, family planning clinic at Grace Lutheran Church in Phoenix. And that was a collaboration between um, Title X or among, I should say, the Title X Oversight Agency. It was called the Arizona, it's now called the Arizona Family Health Partnership, Arizona State University and Grace Lutheran Church. And so the, the three entities came together. The funding flowed through ASU. We did not have a, a H, HPV uh, vaccine at that time. So in 2002, family planning clinics that are sponsored by the federal government are for um, to provide birth control services to um, women and men in their reproductive years um, that are uninsured or underinsured. And it was there that I became more familiar with cervical cancer screening, you know, pap testing. Um, We didn't do HPV testing because uh, at that time, because, you know, standards of care change over time. And so at that time in 2002, we were doing cervical cancer screening. 
And I think what was really moving for me was that we uh, family planning clinics also are, are present uh, and funded by the, uh, to help persons who are trying to have kids and are, are having problems with infertility to help them plan their families. I mean, that's what it's all about. You know, healthy moms, healthy babies, family planning. So we had one gal come in who was a recent immigrant from Mexico, who we often served, primarily served recent immigrants from Mexico. Anyway, the gal came in and she had a hemoglobin, I think it was about 4.2 if memory serves. And when the nurse practitioner did her exam, we were a nurse managed clinic. She, um, on the internal exam, she found tissues that she had never seen before, you know, on, on her visualization. The young woman was trying to get pregnant. She had that low hemoglobin. She um, had advanced cervical cancer. She had, uh, I think she survived maybe two, three weeks after that visit when she came in seeking pregnancy. It was eye-opening to me. The women in our clinic, many of them had never had any sort of examination or pap testing or education about the reproductive health. And so that's when I really got interested. And then when in 2000, well, actually before 2006, um, I started, I, you know, I work with the Arizona Partnership for Immunization as well as a coalition member. And I've been a coalition member with, so it was 94, 95. I started working with the Arizona Partnership for Immunization. And we were so excited before the approval, we started learning about um, the HPV vaccinations. And then when the approval came in 2006, I just really started pushing for that vaccine in particular, based on my experience in 1982 with my diagnosis and um, what I saw in clinic, which was, you know, just devastating. When, you know, when we have the, had underinsured women um, that came in for family planning purposes, and then we had to refer them out for care that was outside of our scope. You know, we could do colposcopy, which is, you know, looking into the vagina and examining the cervix visually with magnification, like a microscope. And we could do some topical treatments, but we um, did not have the ability to do any type of leap procedure or, you know, anything in the office, in our office. So we were always looking for partners that could help the women. Um, very, very challenging. Um, we were just delighted when this vaccine came out and I decided I was really gonna, uh, so, I mean, I just really started doing outreach for HPV vaccine. We, you know, for the parents that came into our clinic, we were making sure that they got information on where to get the vaccine for their children or for their daughters at the time, it was not approved for male, males until 2011, but in 2006, we had a vaccine that could um, prevent cervical cancer. So it was a very exciting time. And, and I just embraced those opportunities and based on my experience and what I'd seen um, and you know my own personal experience and uh, what we saw in clinic, um, I just wanted to prevent any devastation for any you know, persons in their future. And HPV vaccine is cancer prevention. You bring up such an interesting and important point about family planning and how important it really is to get like all of the family members involved and just have those conversations. And we know now that the prevention of cervical cancer is very feasible through the HPV vaccine and immunization and constant diagnostic screenings. So what specifically inspires your work today and keeps you involved with um, HPV immunization advocacy? 
I mean, I'm going to go back to 1982. We didn't even know, I think it was around 1983 that there was a recognition of the relationship between HPV and cervical cancer. And then how many years after that, you know, did it take to wait, excuse me, till we got a vaccine? What keeps me involved, there's challenges with vaccinations and we all know that. All of us are familiar with the challenges with COVID-19 vaccine and the pandemic has been problematic in getting kids in for regular appointments. We have a vaccine that prevents cancer, yet in Arizona, we leave more than 50% of the children in our state um, have not completed that series, which is really a concern to me because we are leaving 50% of our kids vulnerable to cancer. And for me, that's just not acceptable. So I'm going to just keep banging that HPV vaccine drum until I can't bang that drum any longer. Wow. 50% in Arizona in 2022. That, that's incredible. You almost wouldn't believe it unless you knew that statistic. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. So just to ask you point blank, why is getting the HPV vaccine so important? Well, the, the vaccine is cancer prevention. It's cancer prevention. We know that HPV is a, it, it's considered a sexually transmitted infection, but it's transmitted through close intimate contact, not necessarily intercourse. It's cancer prevention. That's plain and simple. It is just cancer prevention. I teach uh, doctoral nursing students. Um, so terminology, antigen and antibody. I think people understand this more because of COVID. So the antigen is the germ, the bacteria or the virus that stimulates the, that stimulates immune response in the person, which the immune response, the body creates antibodies that protect that person against the disease in the future. Okay. That's if they, the germ, the germ, the virus or the bacteria can create an immune response that develops antibodies. So that's, that's like the wild the wild virus or the naturally occurring bacteria that the person might be exposed to. So when you think about vaccines, vaccines also produce an immune response, an antibody. So a vaccine can be an antigen as well, but that's a controlled antigen. That's a controlled antigen that we can kind of predict how the body is gonna to respond to that. And it's safer than getting the wild virus or the bacteria that occurs in nature. So what I like to say is that the vaccine is the teacher for the immune system. Incidence and prevalence are both proportions of disease, and we use them in epidemiology to describe a situation of, of disease process. Incidence is the proportion of persons that develop a condition over a specific time frame. Okay, so you have to have, so that's like new cases of disease over a specific time frame. And then prevalence is anybody that has that condition, no matter when they got it in a specific time frame as well. So that's all the cases, current, all the current cases, no matter when they, when they came in a specific time frame. So when you read about incidence and prevalence, those are easy to mix up as well. And then finally, eliminate and eradicate. Eliminate means to reduce the cases of a disease to, let's say zero, in a geographic region to reduce the cases of disease. So elimination is, uh, is geographic. And then, er and so is eradication, but eradication means that that disease is gone forever 
It may only exist in a lab. So, but, but let's just give an example. In Australia, they've done a really good job at getting close to elimination of um, HPV related to their vaccine programs. But again, that's elimination, not eradication. So when we talk about HPV, the, uh, the prevalence is high. Nearly 90% of college kids have contracted HPV. But most of the time, about 90% of people clear that virus on their own. But for 10% of the population, it's risky business and uh, cancer can occur. There's also a condition that I don't think we talk about too much is it's called um, recurrent respiratory papillomatosis. <laughs> Baby goes, is exposed to HPV that would cause a, like a genital warts, which are sometimes very difficult to see and to treat. So uh, because they, you know, the uh, genital warts do come and go. If mom has an active case of genital warts, whether that's seen or unseen or diagnosed or not diagnosed. Um, if baby goes through that birth canal, they can be exposed to HPV and then they get um, HPV in their respiratory sy system and it can cause um, you know, blockage of the, of the airway. And that condition has to be treated uh, typically like with a laser uh, reduction of, that, of those um, papillomas that are, in, that are in that person's um, throat and in the airway so that they can breathe. Respiratory papillomatosis is um, prevented with moms with active cases of genital warts through, um, through cesarean section. Now, we have a vaccine that can, that can prevent most of those warts. So I think it's just another thing that we need to talk about with people in their childbearing years. There are so many people out there who have concerns about vaccines generally and also about just like HPV immunization specifically. And you yourself just listed off a plethora of things that can be prevented with the HPV vaccine, warts, cancer, respiratory illness. So my question is asked simply, is the vaccine safe? And how do we know that? It is, it is probably one of the safest, safest vaccines. We have had three types of vaccine. We had Cervarix and we had Gardasil 4, and now we only use Gardasil 9 in the United States. So Gardasil 9 protects against, uh, you know, the, the uh, what I like to say, the cancery serotypes of HPD and also against genital warts as well. If you look at those three vaccines that have been studied over time, they, I think if you add all the clinical trials up, there was uh, 74,000 persons in those clinical trials. So that is a huge number of participants in a clinical trial. And, what we found is that it's just, it's just plain safe. We didn't have any serious adverse effects from the vaccine. What we do, what you can expect or what may happen is that the person receiving that vaccine might get a sore arm, um, a little redness and swelling at the site. And then there can be some joint pain, um, but it's safe to get the HPV vaccine and other adolescent vaccines in the same arm on the same day. We just make sure we space those out. But what, what, we, what I see more than anything else is fainting. The adolescents faint more, they're more likely to faint. And they'll faint just as frequently with a, with a Tdap vaccine or a meninge vaccine. Um, HPV vaccine doesn't cause any increase in pain. What I have, this is my anecdotal experience. Whenever someone faints, um, I say, did you ha have anything for breakfast? And more commonly than not, that adolescent didn't have any breakfast before coming to the to the encounter where they got the vaccine. So one of the things we always did in our, in our clinic, we um, always keep 
snacks and food because we oftentimes our faders just haven't had anything to eat before they had that vaccine. So, but one thing to remember is that HPV vaccine prevents new infections. It is not a treatment. So that's why it's so important that we get it in early, that we get that vaccine in early before that person has intimate sexual contact. Perfect. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Are there any other anecdotes or any other comments about HPV vaccine safety before we move to the next portion of this episode? It's a safe vaccine. And we've seen a decrease since we've been monitoring persons for HPV infection since the uh, vaccine was approved in 2006 in the United States. And we see like a decrease of HPV infections, uh, 86% in, in persons 14 to 19 and 71% in their early 20s. But I want you to think about that. We project that the efficacy of the vaccine is 88 to 90% effective in preventing infections. But when you think about when we're, when we're monitoring for HPV disease, you may, that, that population that you're looking at may or may not have had the vaccine. Um, so you're gonna see lower protection rates. Does that make sense, you guys? Yeah, that makes sense. We know that the protection is greater than 10 years, that we have, the immune response is robust and it remains for more than 10 years. And then people say, well, how come you only know for 10 years? Well, it's relatively, you know, we've only been monitoring, you, you give the vaccine in adolescence and then you're gonna be looking at people down the road. So I really have, um, really trust that, that we're going to see a long-term protection from those vaccines given in childhood for those folks as they move into adulthood from, from those HPV-related cancers. I could talk for days about this, you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. So could you tell us a little bit about your work with the United Nations Shot at Life Foundation for the benefit of our listeners? The Shot at Life Conference is an annual conference where attendees advocate for global immunization programs, normally at Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., uh, but sometimes in a virtual setting due to the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, uh, with continued advocacy work done once attendees return to their home states. So could you go ahead and tell us about your work there? Sure. I got involved in um, the United Nations Foundation, I think probably eight or nine years ago. And I was interested in, you know, I've always been advocating in Arizona and nationally and been involved in national conferences and so forth. But after we had the measles outbreak in the United States, the one where we had one person come to Disneyland and transmit measles, y'all remember that? And measles is so infectious, highly infectious, more infectious than COVID-19 was, or, you know, the originally, anyway, you know, one person gets measles and they'll transmit it to 14, typically if the per, if persons are not, not um, immune to measles. It just takes one person coming into a country with that respiratory illness. And I thought, you know, I've got to do a little bit more and I've got to make sure that we in the United States are doing our part in, pre in preventing international disease because, you know, Every kid deserves a shot at life. And that's what shot at life is all about. I got involved with, with shot at life at that point. And you know, when I went to the first summit, the annual summit, it was probably the best advocacy training that I've ever had to have that opportunity to actually make a difference and to speak directly either with the elected official or with their staffers. And this is a bipartisan issue when it comes to policy and politics in supporting measures that, that improve health and also save money. It's fiscally responsible to 
to participate as United States constituents in preventing disease um, globally, because you know all kids have a have a again have, need to have a shot at life, and we still have tremendous problems with vaccine coverage, and, and kids are dying from vaccine preventable disease every twenty seconds. A child dies from a disease that could be prevented by vaccines, so we still have to work and. Nobody's born uh, with with uh, immunity against vaccine preventable diseases, so it's a never-ending project. And in the United States, I think we have about four million kids born every year. And I just um, think that as the United States, we have a we have an ethical, moral responsibility and a fiscal responsibility to help keep kids healthy everywhere. Could you share about what exactly it feels like to go out there and just? share stories and, and really meet our political representatives. What is that experience like and how does it change your life? Well, it's, you know, it's a little, it can be a little intimidating at first, but I would encourage anyone who has the same passion for vaccines that I do to, you know, to learn more about getting involved from a global perspective. It is completely satisfying. It is so satisfying to be able to go out and to educate those staffers or that elected official about the importance of vaccines, the fiscal benefit, and um, the peacemaking part of it, I think is what's so important to me. And, and peacemaking is so important at this time. You know, we are so close to polio eradication globally that, you know, I would just love to see this during my lifetime. And unfortunately, COVID has, um, has you know, put a bump in that road. That's just very exciting for me. My sister-in-law, she lived in an iron lung as a child and she told me stories about that and i have friends who've had polio and there was always a kid with a brace on their leg when i was you know in school kids that were deaf from rubella you know their moms get catching rubella when they during their pregnancies those are things that we've forgotten about and being able to advocate to you know eliminate vaccine preventable disease to the best of my ability it's just it's just a terrific feeling and to be able to talk to others in the United States about the need to keep vaccinating because one of the one of the issues with vaccines is they've done such a fantastic job in the United States that people have forgotten what disease is all about. So working with the United Nations Foundation and Shout Out Life keeps our understanding, it keeps it at the forefront. It keeps it in the in the minds of our, our legislators and brings understanding to the fact that this is a global community. Thank you so much for sharing all of that really interesting information. And you've mentioned, you know, work with Shot at Life, work with TAPI, the Arizona Partnership for Immunization, and all of the awesome things, you know, in your introduction to that you've been doing. But after all your experience, what is the kind of like main stuff that you're working on now? And how are you kind of still staying connected to this advocacy work? So I, I meet regularly with um, the Arizona Partnership for Immunization. I attend their online meetings. We're not meeting in person yet. And then I also serve um, with the Arizona Cancer Coalition as the lead of the HPV vaccination work group in our early detection and prevention work group as a whole. We have one work group. And again, the pandemic has made it a challenge, but we still are plugging away at things. And, and then primarily my affiliation is with the Arizona chapter of the National Cervical Cancer Coalition. So one of the projects that I started before the pandemic with the National Cervical Cancer Coalition, with our chapter, is to identify the 
counties that have the lowest vaccination rates, the lowest vaccination coverage, and Maricopa County is one of them, just so you know, and to go out to those counties and to engage school health personnel in referring uh, students for their HPV and vaccines along with the school requirement vaccines. So that's a project that I started and that's what I hope to work on when travel and and folks are not so inundated with COVID-19. Um, I still am planning that outreach to encourage um, school health personnel to refer all students, uh, sixth grade students, for their uh, school requirement vaccines and the CDC recommended vaccines, which include you know, flu and um, HPV vaccine. But also I'm really excited about working with you guys in outreach to work with college age kids about ensuring that they understand to prevent HPV related cancers in their futures. Because it was great to meet you when you came to talk about your plans for your charitable organization and um, with CCAP across the map. And what I've, um, and I was so glad that you were able to go to Washington DC with me and the other Arizona representatives to learn more about policy, to go, I mean, to meet with our representatives and, and with, with the staffers. I think it was a great experience for you guys. I was so pleased to have you there. And I've really been impressed with the remarkable growth of your organization and the encouragement of the engagement of your peers in the prevention of cervical cancer and, and any HPV related cancers. So that's what, you know, I'm interested in, in getting involved with and working with with you guys um, collaborating because interdisciplinary collaboration is really where it's at when it comes to uh, preventing HPV related cancers. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your kind words about CCAP across the map and, and for all your mentorship. You've definitely played a really huge role with the guidance and support that you have provided us. I did want to go back to the HPV vaccine for a little bit. There are quite a few parents who have various concerns, and I know that we touched on HPV vaccine safety. What would be your response to any parents who are concerned that if their kids get the HPV vaccine early, it's going to cause them to have sexual intercourse at a really young age, perhaps before they're ready to make those decisions, as many parents have, have explained? Well, typically, when, when we're giving HPV vaccine, you know, the standard is is that we want to discuss it as cancer prevention. And I would listen. Uh, what I would do to, with that parent is I would listen. I would say, you know, I understand your concerns, but the evidence shows us that getting an HPV vaccine does not encourage a child to engage in sexual activity just because they got the vaccine. And I also talk about, you know, other vaccines as well. Um, if, you ask, if you ask a typical adolescent what vaccines they re received in childhood or previously, most of the time they don't remember. There, there's just really no evidence behind it, but, but, it's a, but I understand the concern. And the important thing about communication with parents or with anybody who has concerns about vaccines is that we meet that person where they are, we let them guide the conversation, and then we answer the questions simply based on science, briefly and succinctly, and based on evidence. Absolutely. So again, we talked about all your experience and all of the things that you've kind of like taken away from that experience. 
If there is one piece of advice you would like to offer really anyone who wants to get involved in cervical cancer prevention, what would you tell them to do and what would your advice be? I would encourage them to just take a small bite of cancer prevention, um, cervical cancer prevention activity and to get involved with an organization that's already available for them. Either, you know, come to a TAPI meeting or get involved with your organization with CCAP across the map. You know, it, it depends on what their interests are. You know, if they're clinicians, that's going to be completely different involvement than for lay persons. So what I, what's most important to me again, is to get that vaccine in the arms. We are not doing a good job. So I would say first and foremost, when we talk about prevention, the first thing I want everyone to um, get involved with is HPV vaccination and raising those rates in Arizona. We have an ethical and moral duty to do that for any of us who have that interest. So just one last question for you, but what has been the greatest takeaway from working in the field of cervical cancer prevention? The greatest takeaway, just the fact that we're going to see fewer and fewer people with HPV related disease. And, and I never, I never want another woman to go through what happened to that young woman in our clinic um, who, you know, came to us seeking pregnancy and ended up dying from advanced cervical cancer just two weeks after she came to her appointment with us. I never want to see that again. And I don't think any clinician wants to see that. And so cervical cancer is devastating. I mean, it's, it's responsible for death in women globally. You know, it's, it's very prevalent cancer globally. We're, we are so fortunate to live in the United States. So the, the greatest takeaway is really something that I've said before. If we miss an opportunity for HPV vaccination, we create an opportunity for cancer. And that statement, I leave with my fellow clinicians. I want to remind them that it's our um, advocacy and it's our encouragement and a strong provider recommendation for HPV vaccination that has shown in the literature to be the most successful. So again, when we miss an opportunity for HPV vaccination, we create an opportunity for cancer. That's really impactful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, we'd really like to thank Dr. Gail Peterson-Hawk for coming on to this episode of What the Health and sharing this vital information about her experience and experience with the HPV vaccine. Stay tuned for our next episode and give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok at CCAP Across the Map. You can additionally stay up to date with us on our YouTube channel and through our website, ccapglobal.org. Thank you so much for listening to the What the Health podcast, and we'll catch you next time.